Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? I want to make sure this mic is either far away or close enough so I won't be uh, cause anybody trouble. It is always a privilege to be able to, to share the word and to especially share it with you. Uh, we're looking at First uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 16. And uh, considering all that's been going on, not just these days, but throughout the years, how things seem to be so toxic and so hectic. Uh, so First Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And I've entitled this message, uh, How is Your Spiritual Preparedness? How is your spiritual preparedness? And uh, not just for you guys today, but those who are watching online, uh, what's that like for you today? What's it like? Uh, maybe that's just too much of a really strange topic to talk about today, but considering uh, all that we have to uh, survive and think about these days. Uh, so we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And it reads this way in the English Standard Version. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. <clears throat> some time ago, Dateline NBC ran a story about some driving tests that were done on drunk drivers and sleepy drivers. Uh, Sixteen volunteers were used, and half were tested for drunk driving, and the other half for those who were sleepy. A week earlier, all drove through the tests while sober and awake uh, for comparative purposes. Then things got very interesting. Uh, the sleepy drivers were just as bad as the drunk drivers. <laughs> they hit objects placed on the testing site. They also ran through cardboard people and animals. Uh, the drivers were startled and visibly upset for what they did in their driving. Uh, they put them through all these different obstacles and tests and found that whether you are inebriated or asleep and lost a lot of sleep, uh, you're going to do as much damage as someone who is drunk. And so I looked at this, and the question for us, of course, is that in this age of constant turmoil and unseemingly unevacuating COVID disease, election toxicity and spiritual attack, how is our spiritual preparedness? How's our spiritual sobriety? How's your spiritual sobriety? If given a test, how would we score? How would you score? Will you be found spiritually alert and prepared or spiritually drunk or sleepy. Many have disputed uh, Peter's writing of this letter due to its sophisticated Greek grammar found in it in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament. And scholars give three possibilities as to how Peter could have written it. 
Being a commercial fisherman, Peter had to know how to speak, read, and write the common trade language of Koine Greek, just like the English is the trade language in many parts of the world. Secondly, they say that Peter was a man full of the Holy Spirit. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, and of course 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. They both remind us that the Word of God is inspired by God and, and His Holy Spirit. Thirdly, uh, they say that it was possible that Peter had a secretary or an amanuensis, uh, one who wrote for him as he dictated. Uh, maybe they say it was Silas, as we see in Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 29. All I can say is, putting all that stuff aside, we can truly say that Peter, the former fisherman, was an apostle of Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, writing to the scattered persecuted Christians of Asia Minor, we see in verse 1, known as modern Western Turkey today. It is the decade of the early 60s AD, and Nero, the Roman emperor, is persecuting Christians. Peter dies by his hand later on. He's crucified upside down, as tradition says, because he felt not worthy to die like Jesus, right side up. The letter is saturated with lessons of encouragement and instruction. They include a game plan on how Christians are to behave and survive through trials and persecution while preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. In our passage, Peter is calling his readers to remember that during persecution, believers were not to be dull in their thinking but razor-sharp. They were to possess spiritual preparedness. Persecution has the ability to cause Christ followers to forget who they believe in and live for. It causes many to compromise their faith, to check their faith at the door. Peter calls his audience to be awake, to be sober, and to be alert. And so Peter was writing and instructing because persecution has certain abilities, and he knew that. I'm just going to deal with just two abilities that persecution has. And the first ability is this, that persecution toys with one's mind and threatens our hope in God. Persecution toys with one's mind and threatens our hope in God. We see that in verse 13. Peter warns them to prepare their minds for action, this phrase in the original language is the first and only time it's used in the New Testament. He says, prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of the mind. Be sober-minded. He uses the same phrase in chapter 4, verse 7, and in chapter 5, verse 8. A well-known resource describes this phrase as a metaphor derived from the practice of Orientals who, in order to be unimpeded in their movements, were accustomed, when about to start on a journey or engage in any work, to bind their long and flowing robes closely around their bodies and fasten them with a leather girdle. This would be equivalent to our rolling up our sleeves before going to work or before doing heavy-duty labor. And he says that this was to be done with our minds, Peter instructs. Roll up the sleeves of your mind and get ready to be sharp and, and, and be ready to not be uh, inebriated spiritually. 
And though difficult to do under the persecution, one translation of this verse states, First, gird up your minds, get ready to think on God's works, and obey him at once. Then while continuing to be spiritually alert, begin to expect eagerly and confidently that you will receive great blessings when Christ returns. And he says to do this with the mind. The mind in the New Testament works like the kidney filtration system. Whatever goes in gets filtered into our spirits and our souls. The Bible is clear that we are to be aware of what is traversing in and out of our minds. A lot of spiritual battles are won or lost in our minds. That's why Paul speaks of the helmet of salvation in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The mind is the play field of the enemy and at the same time a major battleground. So what happens if your minds are not girded up? What happens if your minds are not sharp or my mind is not sharp? Ask me that at 6.30 in the morning when my mind really isn't too sharp. But we live in a world of relentless departure of what is true. What is stated as opinion is to be taken as truth. Many times we have become disengaged spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually, allowing society to dictate to us their views on what is truth. Society tempts us to be convinced that the Christian life is one of useless fairy tales, as said by dark comedian Bill Maher, the Bible is fictional. God is verbally accosted by the accusations, including statements like, if he is God and he is good, why so much suffering in the world? There is no God. Peter cautions to be alert, to be prepared, to keep your minds sharp so that they wouldn't be led astray and lose hope. It is my opinion that Peter's warning of Asia Minor believers to be alert and sharp with their minds shows that he believed Christians can be led astray and possibly be drastically even hindered in their walk with the Lord. Hence, he reminds his readers to be sharp-minded, ready for action, having spiritual preparedness. He tells them to keep being sober. Not just once, not just twice, but Make it a practice, make it a habit of being sober. The New American Standard Bible adds to keep being sober in the spirit. Many followers of Jesus were and are not spiritually sober. Being sober can mean to not be intoxicated by liquor, but in this passage it has a figurative meaning to define not being intoxicated with the world causing us to forget that we are God's property. We're not of this world, and we mustn't remove any boundary or filters for thoughts. He uses the word sober. In the original language, it means to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate and in control, to be cautious. Words that you don't hear too much these days, not just in the world, but also in the church. So the question I have at this point is, what happens if we do not gird up our minds or are not spiritually sober? 
We can fall prey to the snares of the world, the flesh, and the enemy. We can hinder both the process of God forming us into the person of Jesus Christ and his forming Christ in us. Peter calls these believers to make sure that they walk through their situation like a soldier walks through enemy territory, carefully and spiritually aware of one's surroundings as if walking in a minefield. If you want to play on words in actuality, it is the field of the mind. Many walk recklessly and believe that God will overlook their spiritual insobriety. We live in a time when that is foolishness, recklessly disobedient to these commands. In addition, Peter encourages them to fix their hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to them when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, to God, that could happen today. That could happen this very moment. For us, in times of persecution, in times of toxicity, or times of difficult times, it seems like such a far, long way away. This phrase is also found in verses 5 and 7 of the same chapter. It is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He calls them to concentrate on the upward call for Jesus Christ. It is where hope is derived. And it's not any different today. Society paints the materialistic things of this world as a never-ending party. Contrastingly, the Christian faith is seen as irrelevant, old, and weak. Christians are seen as closed-minded and shallow, while other religions are seen as inclusive and tolerant, even hip. These accusations are at times intimidating, but Peter calls his readers to fix their hope completely on the hope that is alive today, and it is also to come, and that hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. That never gets old. That never is out of style. Our hope is always in Jesus Christ. Christ is still, listen closely, Christ is still the hope for this world. This hope cannot be produced by human will, but by the manufacturing of the Holy Spirit who indwells every follower of Jesus Christ. Peter uses this term of living hope in 1 Peter 1.3 when he talks about being born again in a living hope. This hope is focused on Christ. He is the one, uh, one hope and Christ is the hope of glory as, as it mentions in Colossians 1.27. And in the midst of persecution, he uses this word hope. Notice that that word is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Hope is produced, of course, by the Spirit of God, but it's encouraged by the Spirit of God. Hope means to be patient, to hope, to wait, to trust, to stay in expectation by the encouragement and empowerment of God's Spirit. We're reminded in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, and in Hebrews 12, 2, that our hope is in Christ and heaven is our home. Therefore, let's live like it. Sometimes I think we are so heaven-bound that we have become no earthly good to anybody. The world lives in hopelessness and despair. Let's still shine the brightest in these last days and exemplify the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's live with spiritual and perpetual preparedness. 
Say that six times quickly with a bunch of marbles in your mouth. Persecution toys with one's mind and threatens our hope in God. And our hope is in Christ who will return soon. And the Bible says that every eye will see him. There will be no mistake when Jesus returns. And Peter says, be ready and let your hope be found in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He knew that persecution toys with one's mind and threatens our hope in God. I think Peter also knew the second ability of persecution. That is that persecution can change one's behavior and conduct. We see this in verses 14 to 16. Note what Peter describes the believers of Asia Minor are to be like. He says three things that they're supposed to be like. Hence, us, the reader today, they're supposed to be obedient. Not disobedient or rebellious. He also says that we're to be children of God the Father, not children of the world. We talked today in our study downstairs of how the Christian faith pretty much is very exclusive. We are pretty much everybody's a child of God in that God created everybody, but the exclusivity comes in that those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ become children of God. And Peter says, live like children of God. Stop being disobedient and know who your father is. He says, thirdly, they were not to be conformed to their former lusts. In their ignorance. Again, Peter reminds them of their former lives. They were conformed to their lust, their before Christ experience. uh, Lives before encountering Jesus Christ. This word conform is also found in Romans 12 too. This word conform in Greek is the only time it's used here, and it's used one more time in the New Testament. It means to form or mold after something, a scheme or pattern, like a vanilla cone dipped in chocolate syrup. The chocolate takes the form of the ice cream. It was at this time of the sermon when I was craving some ice cream and then thought about how chocolate just lovingly just bakes over the ice cream and it takes the form of the ice cream cone. Uh, But this is true. There is confirmation there. This deals with one's character and it is our character formed into that of Christ or not. And Peter says, your conduct will tell. Your conduct will tell, my conduct will tell if we have been conformed into the image of Christ. Again, Peter shows his belief that Christians can also fall back to their formal lifestyle of sin and desires. And how does this happen? By having a lack of spiritual preparedness. By not keeping sober in spirit. By not fixing our hope completely on the future grace given at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By conforming to the former lusts that were ours in ignorance. Living in our before Christ's lives. I like what Wayne Grudem says in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, Peter reminds these Christians that obedience to God and holiness of life are radically different from a life that follows natural, that is, worldly desires wherever they lead. Christians are to recognize their desires for what they are and then strive to not let their lives be influenced by them. And he closes by saying, we are not animals. Paul in Romans 12, 12, uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 states to not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. There goes that word again. This lifestyle of being a nonconformist is not to be lived in ignorance. This word ignorance is the lacking of wanting in knowledge, especially of divine things. This word used here is where we get our world uh, word for agnostic, agnoia, not to know, not having the true knowledge of God's will and desire. Do you get insulted when somebody says that you're ignorant of God's things? Peter says, don't be ignorant. No sea ignorante. Today, many live ignorantly to God's word, his will and desires. They don't heed God's word. They're still holding on to the former lusts and desires of the flesh, the sinful nature. They think they know what is best for themselves. Peter teaches that to conform to our former lusts is ignorance. And many of Asia Minor believers, unbelievers, sought after false knowledge and ungodly philosophies, and Peter is stating to not be like them. So if they were not to conform to their former lifestyles and lusts and desires, then they are to be like God. And Peter says God is holy. We don't use that word that much anymore in our vocabulary. Holy means to be separated from the world, to serve God while in the world. But you know, it means completely, that is who God is. He's holy other. There is no one in the universe as our God. There's no one as good and as righteous and as loving as our God. He is completely and totally holy. And Peter says, you have to be like God, holy, separate unto him in this world. He is the one who called us through Jesus Christ, and we have forgotten. We fall short of God's definition of holiness sometimes. Therefore, we need God within the Holy Spirit to live holy lives through us. Holiness is allowing Christ to live through us, unhindered by sin. And he says we're to be holy because God is holy. We're to be holy in our behaviors, in our manner of life. And so when we make excuses or justify our sinful actions, we nullify our holiness, he says. This word nullify means we make a way, we make a place for sin in place of God's holiness. We're reminded by Peter who quotes Leviticus 11 verse 44 and following that we are no longer people of the world but children of a holy God and our king is not human but sovereign. Even though this evil world may persecute, prejudge, or reject God's children, we're to remain holy and not compromise our faith to satisfy worldly desires or to be liked by the world. He says, be holy as God is holy. Being holy doesn't mean to be weird, strange, or legalistic. It means to represent the holiness of God in an unholy world. God living in and through us, not in a vacuum or in isolation. How will the world know or encounter a holy God if we're not holy? We are people of God and we're clothed with his righteousness, the person of Jesus Christ. So we're to submit to his will and not to our own. Notice that these Christians were willing to live for a God that radically changed their lives. Atheists have a hard time understanding this. 
Today, many Christians are dying for their faith in deeply antagonistic countries to the Christian faith. Why? Because God is real. And they have possessed spiritual preparedness. They stand in awe of the holy God and they live that way. The apostles believed in a living God who lives today and forevermore. I don't know about you, but that's the God I serve. He's He's alive now and forevermore. He was alive as soon as he came out of that tomb. My Jesus is alive. Therefore, we're to live holy lives according to him. It causes the world to scratch their heads and ask, why do these Christians still hold on to their faith in such a hostile environment? And the answer is this. We serve a living Savior who one day is coming back to take us home to be with him forever. And some of us may be praying, oh God, let it happen today. My God, what are you waiting for? I wish that sometimes my days, I tell you what, I say, God, what are you waiting for? And then I remember, I know people who don't know Christ. I remember that there are people who are far outside of a relationship with God. I say, okay, God, hold on. Use me then. Use me to do what you need to do to reach them. So I want to close by saying this. How do we acquire spiritual preparedness? This is the part of the sermon where we say, okay, do one, two, three, and then you're set, right? (laughs) No, please understand that I don't see this as a do this and you'll reach spiritual preparedness. I will approach this in form of questions to reflect on. And I think there are six categories of questions for all of us to ponder. It's a sort of a spiritual inventory this morning I want to encourage us to take. The first is this. Do we have a flow-through lifestyle of worship? Does worship define our lifestyles? Does God rule and reign over our lives? Is he enthroned in our lives? And do we declare his greatness for this? Do we declare his praises living in worship? So does worship define our lives? Secondly, are we regularly involved in a lifestyle of discipleship? Are we regular students of God's word? Also, are we letting godly people pour their lives into ours? And are we turning, in turn, pouring our lives into others to be more like Jesus Christ? That's what discipleship is. It's producing generations of Christ's followers. Does your life exemplify that? Does my life exemplify that? Thirdly, does our Christian lifestyle include a healthy amount of community? Or are we so isolated that we have stunted our spiritual growth? Are we sharpening our lives with others? Or are we soul irons in the fire of self-indulgence? Are we a loving community? As I keep hearing the word uh, lockdown, I get shivers still down my spine to think to be locked down again, to be isolated from family, from community. Our favorite pronoun at times is the vertical pronoun of I. And one, uh, and one two other favorite letters are M-E. That's not community. Fourthly, 
Are we intentionally sharing our faith with others? And are we keeping the great news of rescue to ourselves? Are we embedded only in the Christian culture, being more in-reaching than outreaching? Are we sharing our faith regularly? Number five, does our Christian lifestyle exemplify loving Christian service? Serving the communities where we are situated and live, or are we self-serving, inwardly church-oriented? Service out of love for Christ is what we're talking about here. Are we addressing social issues with the love of Jesus Christ? And lastly, does our lifestyle possess the powerful discipline of prayer? Do we pray? Do we intercede for others? And in case you don't know what intercede means, that you are standing in the gap praying for somebody else. And do we receive and accept intercession from others? Do we allow others to pray for us? Or has prayer become a chore or a to-do list? Prayer is the bedrock of our spiritual preparedness. And so I want to just close by asking this. Are we ready spiritually? Does our life exemplify spiritual preparedness or are we spiritually asleep and spiritually drunk at a time when we need our spiritual wits about us? Take these six questions and go to the corner by yourself with the Word of God and ask, them, ask yourself these questions. Do a spiritual inventory. Where are you with worship? Where are you with discipleship? Where are you with community? Where are you with sharing your faith? Where are you with Christian service? And where are you with prayer? Could we close this morning in prayer?